Welcome to Your Family Dog, a podcast dedicated to helping families love living with dogs. Welcome back to the Your Family Dog podcast. I'm Tina Spring, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Julie Fudge-Smith, and I am stoked for the guest we have today. Um, Today, we get to have Dr. Chris Blazina, who is a psychologist. He's a licensed psychologist, retired professor, and award-winning author. He's been in practice more than 25 years, working with a wide array of concerns, including depression, anxiety, life transitions, grief and loss, men's issues, relationship problems, and pet bereavement. And in particular, Chris is very involved in the study of men and boys and their dogs. And so I'm so excited to hear about this and to um, and to chat with you. Um, I was saying before we started on the call that one of my dear friends often talks about the very special relationship he had with his dog growing up. Um, lots of us don't have very easy childhoods. And so I'm always excited when I get to hear of a way that I can understand these beautiful special relationships better. So as is our um, our tradition, I got to do the intro. And so Julie gets to ask the first question. Well, welcome, Dr. Blazina. So glad you're here with us. Um, I think both Tina and I were really excited by the prospect of talking about men and dogs, because most of our guests turn out to be women. And we talk lots about dogs, but mostly with women. So it's very exciting to have you on board. And my question for you is, how did you get interested in dealing in in uh, looking at the special relationship of men and dogs? How did how did this come about? And uh, can you tell us that story? Yeah, well, uh, first, I'm really glad to be visiting with you both today. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about these topics that are near and dear to me. Um, so I've been in practice as a psychologist for over 25 years now, and I specialize in working with men uh, as male clients. Uh, People ask me too, does that mean you don't work with women at all? And that's not the case, but it's just, uh, you know, working with men have kind of a a special niche. And there's a lot of research that talks about men's attitudes toward going to therapy. And the kind of prevalent one in North America is that Going to therapy runs exactly counter to the way most men and boys are taught and uh, socialized in our society. So what ends up happening there is they don't always have an outlet to, to kind of talk about things that are going on. And sometimes it blocks them from having a connection with the people in their life, whether that's their romantic partners or friends or family. And that's where dogs really come in. Uh, so, in my practice uh, as a psychoanalytic psychologist, kind of the key idea there is that we're all hardwired to make and sustain connections throughout our lives. That That's a central part of who we are as social animals. But uh, the rules that many males are socialized with would be that you're supposed to deny that part of you, that you really don't need connection. And... In fact, owning up to the idea that you actually are in need and want of a connection over the course of your life, it's it's really against the grain about what we're taught. Uh, 
And again, that's where dogs come in for a lot of males. Uh, that connection kind of flies under the radar or it doesn't quite count because it's a dog and not a human being. Uh, so how I got involved in this was I specialized in working with men. And um, probably, well, this has been 16 or 17 years ago now, my own dog passed away. My dog, Kelsey, who was basically my best friend and portable family throughout graduate school and the beginning of my career. And that loss hit me like a thud. Uh, uh, and I, I was expecting it to be difficult, but not as difficult as it ended up being. And part of what happened at that point in my career was I, I started paying more attention to the stories, not just in my own life, but the, the ones that my clients would tell me, especially the male clients, about the important relationship with their dogs in their lives and how that connection, for some folks, ended up being very vital. And that was a pivotal change. Uh, I started to approach this the way that I would as a professor and a clinician, trying to really understand why this bond was so important for males. And um, the rest, as they say, is history. Uh, I've been looking at this and researching and writing about it and visiting with folks on different shows for, I guess, the remainder of the last 16 or 17 years. And uh, what stands out over and over again is the part I mentioned. Men are social creatures, even though we tell ourselves we're not, and that we need at least one reliable bond in our life to not just to get along, but to flourish. And sometimes that bond is our dog. Well, and dogs are pretty good at keeping secrets, right? So, so, so if you're, if you're sitting in your office crying, they're pretty good at not telling on you with, with the people around you. So, you know, we here, we work specifically with family dogs and, making it more enjoyable for families to live with their dogs. Are there things, so from that perspective, are there things that women who are, at least in my experience, primarily the caregivers and the, the trainers of the dogs for lots of families, are there things that we do that are potentially counterproductive or are there things we can do that would help foster those relationships for those important men and boys in our lives? Are you talking about with their dogs or on a more person-to-person? -person? I, I would love answers to either question. I was going to say all of the above. All of all the above. Of the above. <laughs> well, I, I think a big part of it starts with um, uh, the point I was driving at there that for some people, uh, and it could be family or it could be their significant other, um, sometimes there is the perspective that, oh, men men don't need that kind of connection. They're, they're men. Um, they're anomalies in terms of being social creatures. They don't, they don't really need a kind of reliable tie. And that's, I think, the biggest falsehood uh, in terms of approaching this. Like, that has to be kind of rethought that, no, um, men may tell you that they don't need a connection, but they actually really do, just like any other social creature. It's part of our DNA and our hardwiring. And when we start to think about it along that line, then then things change a little bit. I can tell you about a study that came out a couple of years ago that I did with a colleague of mine. Um, I was thinking about all these things that we're talking about. And 
we we did a study to see if men who were really bonded with their dogs also felt a pressure to underreport or even hide their sense of attachment to their dogs. And it turns out men who kind of tend to be more traditional in the way they think about uh, their notion of being a man, like they should be independent and on their own and stoic and stiff upper lip. Those men had a strong connection to really underplaying how important their dogs were. Uh, but realizing that they were underplaying it, like they knew they had to hide it. And uh, I told this to one of the graduate students I was working with, and she told me a story about her dad, that her dad fit exactly that. Uh, he was a tough guy, always tough, um, but he had a dog, and he pretended like the dog wasn't all that important until it was just him and the dog. And his daughter caught him. Look at, he, she was looking through the window, seeing her father really loving the dog and cuddling it up. But he would never own up to that. So what you see is not always what you get when we talk about men and connections and even with their bonds with their dogs. It can be really important, but it's also something that they might feel pretty protective of, like they're not really allowed to talk about it. Yeah, I I I see that. I, I remember with with my dad, he was the same way. But every once in a while, I'd, I'd catch him talking to the dog. I think one of the things that um, I have found is that in in helping the males in in my family and the others is um, I think that women sometimes uh, they have a, a tendency to say, well, this is the way you're supposed to do it. This is how you're supposed to train the dog. This is how you're supposed to feed the dog. This is how you're supposed to walk the dog. And what I have found to be really helpful is to give men permission to do it their own way, to say, you can walk your dog the way you want to walk your dog. You know, um, I have a, I have a couple I'm working with that um, their dog is reactive and they both are very good at reinforcing the dog for looking at them when he's about to react, but they do it in very different ways. And I could see the wife, she's gearing up to say, you know, that's not. And I said, you know, way you're doing it is absolutely beautiful. That works for you. And it stopped her short. And they both then developed a really strong relationship with the dog, but they developed their own relationship with the dog. So I think sometimes we need to give men the freedom just to be who they are and to develop their own relationship. And I think if you give them the freedom without telling them that they're either doing it wrong or you have to do it my way, maybe that will free them up a little bit more. And um, the other thing I have found to be handy to help them bond with the dog is give them a specific task to do with the dog and then let them just do it. And uh, so I don't know what you thought about that. Well, uh, I guess where my mind goes immediately is that, you know, one of the roles uh, men are really socialized with is that they're supposed to be good at everything. And uh, especially in a public avenue, like, oh, I'm, I have, I have to go see a trainer to help me with my dog. Uh, right there, that's all kinds of loaded in terms of, wow, I'm not doing this right, and that means I'm not man enough, and I'm going to be defensive and difficult, and um, it has a lot of potential to stir things up. True, true. Um, and oftentimes, it's the wife that has called me, and, you know, we need help with the dog. So you have to sort of tread lightly 
in that kind of a relationship because you're right, they can get really defensive and understandably so. Um, somebody coming in and telling them, you know, what they're doing. So oftentimes I will ask them, so, you know, how do you see things? And, and asking their opinion of it sometimes will open the door to uh, allowing them a little bit more freedom to, to work with me. So. Yeah. Just the idea that um, it would be okay to, to not know everything and not feel called out for it uh, would put a lot of men at ease. Like, oh, uh, what I've learned is that, you know, you have to know everything. And if you don't know anything, you open yourself up to a kind of attack that nobody wants. One of the, the rules that I've had in my practice is we're not allowed to force any family member. <laughs> right? So, if the husband's like, no, I'm good with the dog. I'm like, okay, cool. That's awesome. You do you, right? And focus on the people who do think that they want to be involved in that process. I get a lot of, well, we all need to be consistent. And I'm like, I love you. We're not all going to be consistent, <laughs> right? Like we all get to screw it up our own way. So I do sometimes talk to men about, like, if they've got already gotten called out about, like, oh, I play roughly with the dog or whatever, we just talk about things that they can do to make that under stimulus control so that the dog knows that that's okay with them, but that, like, maybe their six-year-old daughter is not super comfortable with that interaction and that the dog can be something special for dad or for big brother and something different in a different special way for mom and the girls. Um, and my experience is that most men are happy to accommodate that as long as they're allowed to love their dog their way and do the things with their dog they want to be able to do and that that's accommodated. They're happy to accommodate everyone else. So loosely is your answer like we women need to zip it and just let our boys and men have the relationship with the dog they want? Because I love you, sir, but... I don't think we've got a prayer of that happening. <laughs> uh, uh, well, <laughs> that would be one to go about it. Uh, just to, there would be more latitude there in terms of uh, men are really socialized to be defensive about not doing things right. Uh, and wow, we should really know how to do this. And if the dog is misbehaving, obviously it's my fault. Even if you let me off the hook and say it's not, uh, there's going to be some part there where uh, men are going to tend to personalize that and react to it and potentially push back. Okay, so um, when we're thinking about the relationships between men and their dogs, is it just, and I'm assuming the same is true for boys, um, again, are there things that we as for, for the, the sisters and moms and grandmas in the room, um, are there things we can do to kind of get out of the way um, that is helpful or do we just need to leave it alone and let that be its own thing? Well, I mean, I think a lot of this starts with the with the, the kind of notion of like what does that bond between a man and his dog or a boy and his dog really what does it mean and uh one of the books that i did with some of my colleague, colleagues looked at the research connected that across the lifespan from boys to to men to middle-aged men and older and one of the things that uh you know we've talked about this but the idea that males need connection too and 
One of the studies that was looked at here in terms of middle-aged men were asked to compare their closest human companion, usually that was their significant other, girlfriend, wife, and their closest animal companion. And the results here are a little bit telling. Um, so when looked at like uh, how safe, how predictable, how secure the connection is with your dog, men, about 62% of the men when commenting on their dogs, they said it's almost always secure almost always safe, almost always predictable. And when they compared that to the closest human companion, usually their girlfriend or wife, wasn't 62% of men, it was about 15% of men. So 15% of men looked at their closest human companion as always secure, always predictable, always safe. So we're talking about a fairly big discrepancy here in terms of how men may view their connection with their dog and how important that is. It's, it's a connection they come back to over and over again. In another study that came out five or 10 years ago, uh, another colleague found that again with the middle-aged men, when you were having a bad day, when you were in distress, who are you more likely to turn to? And for a good bit of men, almost 45% of the men, they were likely to turn to their dog to find a sense of comfort and soothing. More than a brother or a sister or a mother or a father or a best friend, the only person that rivaled the dog was their significant other. And it was kind of right there, touch and go. So, I think a big part of this is to understand the scope of how important that connection is. And again, what you see is not always what you get. So if you ask uh, your friend, family member, significant other, wow, I saw this podcast today and this guy said your relationship with your dog is almost as important as with me. Um, it is likely they have been trained to be smart enough to not own up to that because that's only going to cause trouble. <laughs> it's likely that it's case. Uh, yeah, I can I can see that. Um, I, I find that um, really interesting and and sad in in some ways. And because this relationship that's so important that that's not what bothers me. What bothers me is the fact that it has that they feel a sense that it has to remain hidden. And I wonder if they could be more open about the relationship with their dog and trust that it's okay that I have this meaningful relationship. Would that allow them to be more open and trusting in their other relationships? Would it then feed the other way? Well, that's a really great question. And um, I mean, I guess my hope as a psychologist and a researcher is that the things that males learn from the connection with their dogs can be generalized. Like, it shouldn't just be a man and his dog. It, it doesn't mean that you have to replace the dog with a human being, but it should kind of broaden the platform of potential connections you might have. Like, if you learn to really connect through being with your dog, which a lot of males do, that can just be the beginning of other kinds of connections. 
but um, it, it doesn't have to stop there. But I, I'm with you. It, it, in the best possible terms, it ends up being a way that males learn to generalize connection to all the important people in their life, whether they have two legs or four legs. Chris, I work with a lot of families that are in interesting transition, right? They're transitioning to be empty nesters or the old dog passed away and some of the family typically the women are ready to have a new dog in the household and often dad is really really resistant and and I have long felt that 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 resistance is that it hurts too much right they're grieving and they don't get to talk about it they don't I'm assuming that you don't process it the way we do um, and that they often need more space and time. I try to talk to women about that sometimes and say, he's just not ready. And in my opinion, I think we, we need to wait until we're ready. And then, you know, that starts the whole conversation of, well, we're ready and he's not. So why should we not? And he, gets to and it it ends up being a really fascinating family dynamic um how do i help in situations like that where dad's heartbroken and it's clear that dad's heartbroken and is i imagine my experience has been there have been times in my life where i have been heartbroken and i said that's it i'm never gonna do that again because it's too painful when it ends I'm assuming that that's kind of what the guys are sometimes feeling. How can we help? Yeah. Well, again, a really important question and a really important theme here. And part of this is how do we deal with the loss of an animal companion? And animal companion is uh, kind of code for uh, a dog, a cat, a horse that really is more like a family member or best friend than it is, oh, it's just a pet. So, you know, uh, this is true in a lot of parts of the world, but in the U.S., if, you know, the research suggests that over, somewhere between 85 and 90 percent of families um, really look at their pet as an animal companion, that is a family member or best friend. And, you know, the things that we talked about a few minutes ago about, you know, uh, the importance of that connection in men's lives, because men have a, a much narrower social network of connections. And it, the research really does support the idea that as men grow older, middle aged and beyond, it really shrinks to the size of a postage stamp. You might have your significant other and your dog. And when you lose your dog, you have basically lost half your social network of support. So when we ask men to, you know, isn't it time to get another dog after we lost this one, the one you were bonded to for 14 years? Um, it places men in an uncomfortable situation like they have to fully face that sense of grief and loss. And that can be overwhelming. And again, I, I come back to this phrase, but men are not socialized to deal with that type of grief. Um, it, it They can feel like it's against the rules to even feel sad about losing their dog. Um, but, but, you know, again, 
whether I talk about it in terms of my own clinical practice or my own personal experience of losing dogs or the research that supports this idea, um, men really experience a sense of grief when they do lose their animal companions. Again, if you think about wiping out half your social network and especially the go-to person when you really are having a bad day, wow, uh, to face that in terms of getting another dog and the potential to connect again, it, it's going to bring up all kinds of hard feelings that have to be sorted through. I, um, I, I think that's absolutely right. I think that um, sometimes I think that, that we live in society that says to um, – because we're sort of into there's sort of this instant gratification, I think we also think that there should be sort of instant healing as well. That uh, when you you know the the dog died a week ago, what's your problem? And um, I think that what we need to understand is that grief is is genuinely a process, and that for each one of us that process can take a varying amount of time. I know that when I lost my dog Bingley. Um, it was several months before I could face getting another dog. It was just too heart-wrenching for me. I knew I would get another dog, um, but I just couldn't do it right away because it was just like I kind of felt as if I was an Aztec sacrifice and somebody had just ripped my living heart out of my chest. And um, I, I think that we need to allow people that opportunity that 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 uh, things are not instantaneous grief is not over simply because i've had a specified amount of time that you think is appropriate and um i think if we can be generous with that we may find that actually that generosity in saying to somebody you know i understand this is really hard and i understand that this is taking you some time might actually allow them to get over it faster than than feeling guilty because i feel i should be getting over this and i don't and i'm not getting over it what's wrong with me should i be feeling you know um i, I think it can really exacerbate the situation um i'm really with you and there's a particular phrase that fits with what you're talking about it's called disenfranchised grief it's when and this can happen in all kinds of formats, but it happens with uh, the loss of pets and animal companions when it feels like the immediate circle or even society doesn't support your grief. Like you need to be on a timetable to get over the loss of your dog. And that only causes a person to go deeper into the sense that it's off limits to really feel the grief that I feel. Uh, and I should really, I made the mistake of letting you know that I was grieving. I'll make sure I don't do that again. Uh, I could talk a little bit about the loss part of things for a little bit, because this is a something everybody faces. Everybody faces. Uh, the hard thing in terms of what we were just talking about, this kind of dis disenfranchised loss, is the person you probably would want to turn to in those moments of actually losing is no longer here. Your dog's gone. So that just adds to the sense of loss. Like, yeah, the, my dog would be the person I would talk to about such a thing, but they're not here anymore. And uh, I can think about, you know, studies that I've done um, looking at how men grieve the loss of their dogs. And well, one example always sticks in my mind, and I think in part because it resonates uh, with my own experience. But I remember an elderly man talking about the way that he celebrated 
the loss of his animal companion every year. It became an anniversary instead of a traumatic event. What he would do was go to the place on his farm where his dog was buried and lie down and take a nap with his dog. And that was his way of connecting. How sweet. How sweet is that? I like the idea of celebrating the anniversary rather than having it be a a point of trauma. But wow, that's really a connection. It is. And so, you know, this I'll tell you a story about Freud before I talk to you about this part about loss. Freud was a very big dog person. Um, He uh, if you go to. The, the London Museum uh, for Freud, and you look at some of the pictures, and you can see that in his latter years, especially, his dogs were omnipresent in his life. They even had, he, he really liked chows. He, he, liked gold, he liked German shepherds, but he especially liked chows. And his chow, Jofi, had her own couch in his sitting room in his analytic room where he saw patients and the rumor was the dog was kind of a screener for for freud's patients that he trusted his dog's reaction to meeting new people on whether or not to accept them as a patient Uh, there's a story that came out a long time after freud died about one of these people who met freud and said he was not so worried about uh, meeting Freud, but he was really nervous about meeting Freud's damn dog because the dog had the final say on whether or not he was accepted. Uh, the other thing that happened with his dogs, it, this is end up being a very involved story because um, Freud, it's not widely known, but Freud uh, developed uh, cancer of the jaw about midway in his life. And he had more than 30 operations on his jaw, and toward the end of his life, he had a prosthetic jaw. And what he did was have one of his dogs, if he had meat for a meal, he would have one of his dogs chew up the meat for him first before he ate it because he couldn't do it with his own teeth anymore. So he was very tied to his dogs, and he even wrote about dogs. Uh, one of the most poignant things he talked about in terms of uh, canine connection in our life is the way that dogs love us. And he talked about a type of pure love that human beings are not able to pull off. Uh, human beings have ambivalence and they can love and hate the most important people in their life. But that's not what a dog does. You can trust their straightforwardness. They love the people they love, and they bite the people who are enemies. And when a dog really loves you, you know it's really real. You don't have to have second guesses on whether this is a part of some nefarious agenda that you're going to be tricked into. When a dog loves you, you you know it. So when we're talking about bereavement, with the men in our lives and our our family pets, whether that's a horse or a cat or a dog, um, how does a family best proceed? Like, is there a best practice for how to process all of that and decide whether or not and when a next one will occur? So the old way of looking at grief and it's been around for more than 100 years and freud actually was a participant in this until 
he had a number of different losses in his own life, the loss of his favorite daughter, um, his own illness, loss of other people. He had to move from Vienna to London because of World War II. Um, the way that we approach loss is not in that kind of stage-by-stage -stage grief now. Uh, you mentioned earlier about grief being a process, and that's kind of the way most mental health folks look at that this day, is that uh, there is a loss and it's very real. One of the things that's really important part of that process is something called a continuing bond. The old way of looking at grief was when somebody was gone, they were gone, and you were supposed to kind of cut off your ties to them and um, move on with your life. And the best sign that you've recovered from grief is that you were able to invest all that love and energy that you had in the person who's no longer here and invested in someone else. But you could see how the parallel would be there for a dog too. Like, oh, you, you've gotten better because you're ready for a new dog. You can invest in a new way. The way that folks look at it these days, and I find it to be a particularly helpful, is that after you lose someone who feels irreplaceable, it doesn't make any sense. And in fact, it's it's harmful to feel like you have to cut them out of your life and out of your psyche and out of your heart. And what you should be aiming for instead is this notion of a continuing bond. It's the idea that you find a new way to connect with someone who's no longer here. Now, in different parts of the world, this has been a tradition for a very long time. Uh, here, uh, it, it is maybe something more on the cusp of what we're trying to do, and especially when we're talking about with animal companions. There are different ways to recognize that they are no longer here, but they're still a part of your life. Some people do it in tangible ways, like um, they have pictures I have a little statue of my last dog, Sadie, that I had made, and um, I say good morning to Sadie every morning. Um, and some people do this in other kinds of ways, like they name a kennel after their dog, or in, in several studies, some folks do things like they plant a tree and put a bench under that tree, and that's the place where they go and kind of connect and talk to and think about their dog. And... Um, one of the ways that's less tangible is to feel like they have taken up permanent residence in your heart and in your psyche and that they're always with you. Um, so you can dial into connecting with them. But there are lots of different ways. Just think about the notion that if you were to cut off or felt the pressure to cut off all the parts of your life that your dog has touched, you would be removing parts of you. That, that wouldn't make any sense. But if you can find um, a way to continue that bond forward and them be an active part of your life, even after they're gone, then that's a different deal. That's a deal changer. And it opens up the opportunity to invite other connections into your life, whether that's a human or a dog. I think most people get stuck when they feel like, well, dog's not here anymore. I'm not allowed to feel things, or I should feel this pressure to cut them off. And um, that's the wrong inclination in terms of helping you move forward. So is modeling helpful? Like, so we had a situation, we lost 
three old dogs in within 18 months of each other. Um, and it was, oh, it was, well, training for the pandemic. But um, the um, I, I said many times that grief, and I have learned that for me, I think grief is becoming somewhat developmental, right? As I age, grief and I will be more constant companions because it will, grief will visit my life more consistently until, well, until I'm the one being grieved. Um, And so I do talk to our dogs who have passed away and I do, um, as a matter of fact, Marco wears one of my old dog's collar. Mm-hmm. Um, now, he never met that dog, but that dog was something else. And I like to think that some of that something else um, is perhaps being whispered in Marco's ear um, like- a little bit from that dog. So can, can women... I? what I keep hearing from you is like, okay, women, you can't really do anything about this. Right. Um, if I ask a direct question, I'm pr- I may not get an accurate answer and I can't really guess cause I'm probably going to guess wrong. Cause my lens is really, really different. So can I just model my grief and is like, is that enough of a way to be supportive? Well, I sure don't want to leave the impression that there's nothing that can be done. In fact, all these different nuances of what we're discussing are ways to understand if you're approaching a male in your life to to be able to open up the conversation and talk about these things or um, listen to this podcast and then, hey, um, does any of the stuff that they talked about resonate with you? Um, does it feel like you can't really talk about these things because it's against the rules? Um, that kind of knowledge leads to a sense of empowerment, like, hey, there are things we can do here. Uh, you don't have to sit silently in your grief and feel like you can't share it with me. I just need to understand more about what you're going through. What I have found when, when my, my husband lost uh, his burner that was his canine soulmate, um, you know, one of the things that, that I found is that over time, in, in, we lost, like Tina, I lost three dogs in 2016. It was just, it was a really hard year for us too. And, but I just, I will do things like, you know, I'll see a picture, I'll see a dog do something and I'll just say, hey, doesn't that remind you of Buckley? Wasn't that really funny when he did that? And it, it sort of give him an opportunity to open up and talk to me about some of those special moments that he had with Buckley. You know, or say, oh, he was such a special dog and he was so funny when he did this. And I have found that th- that's actually helped a lot is is just to, to, to it's almost like a writing prompt. You know, it's, it's a, it's a feeling prompt. You know, I remember this about Buckley and he was really wonderful. And, um, you know, do you remember that? And and that's often led to some of our, some of our, our best memories and laughing and talking about these dogs and, and like having them come back alive again. When, um, when my, when my, my dog Bingley died, my husband reminded me of a study of people who had remarried after, the uh, death of a spouse. And one of the things that was really interesting that they reported was that 
even though they were happy in their new lives, that there wasn't a day that went by that they didn't think about and intensely miss their first spouse. It didn't yes. make them less happy, but it was a recognition of a life past. And I got to thinking about that. And and I don't think that there's any reason why that can't apply in a similar way to your dog. That, um, you know, every dog can have a special place in your heart, but we all have some dog who's sort of like our champion, you know, the one that has really unwrapped itself around our heart. And I kind of feel like it's okay to still miss and love that dog intensely, even as you've moved forward and had another dog. And I think it's important to understand that you can do that with all kinds of relationships. And uh, that was just, it was very comforting to me to sort of have my husband remind me of that, that this kind of thing is okay. It's really okay to intensely miss. Yes, it's a really great point because um, uh, uh, the model that most of us experience or are taught about grief, whether that's you're a male or female, is you're supposed to get rid of the person or the dog that you've loved before. Um, It's almost like a kind of a building metaphor. There is this building and now you're supposed to tear it down and you're supposed to rebuild in its place. And... um, that's just not uh, it's not a reasonable way for folks to go forward on that it it's not about tearing down the building it's more like keeping the structure in place and then having adjacent lots for other important connections to still exist so um i think about this in terms of you know this is the map of our psyche and in our internal world that we have uh, a main street where all the people who, and dogs and animals who have touched our life, some version of them kind of resides inside of our psyche. And if there's a pressure to get rid of a building um, that represents one of those connections, then we really are losing a part of ourselves in the process. But if we can get to the idea that it's okay to have adjacent lots with different connections that all exist in the same neighborhood, then that's a different kind of deal. It reminds me of the, the Bible verse about in my father's house, there are many rooms. And I kind of feel that way about my heart, that every time one of my dogs dies, they take a piece of my heart with it, but it gets filled back up with all the love and memories of them. And I'm thinking that pretty soon, I read this somewhere and I thought it was really true, is that if I have enough dogs, that pretty soon my heart will be all canine. Um, and that was probably a pretty good thing. It's probably better to have a canine heart than a human heart. But, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I like that. Huh. I do think well, about how do we how do we help build that bond between dogs and men and boys? Like, is it just giving them paying attention to special things? So if I notice that Chris really seems to be comforted by a dog lying its head on his lap when he's reading his book. Um, do I, can I help foster that? Like, I don't know, maybe teach the dog when a specific blanket's on the sofa, go lay on it for cuddling. Well, um, I really like and appreciate what you're both saying in terms of potentially fostering this. Um, some of this, I think, is part of our natural hardwiring we just have to get out of the way and let it happen. Um, I, I can tell you a story of the opposite side of this. 
where a client that I worked with a while back who came in to see me about some stress he was having with his career. And we'd met a handful of times. And then one day he came in and beginning of our session, he started telling me, well, you know, this was a little bit different week. My dog died. And I'll, I'll tell you, this is a skill set that I have learned over 25 plus years at this point. There was this micro expression of him looking at me to see if it was okay to talk about his dog. And it was just a flash. He looked down and then he started talking about career stuff. And uh, I saw the little micro expression and I was like, hey, you know, you told me something really important there about your dog. Why don't, why don't you tell me about that? And then the real honesty came out. I didn't know if it was okay to talk about that or not. So part of the modeling, part of the like, well, I really like the way that you were with your dog today, or that was really endearing to see you care about our dog in such a way. That gives this kind of direct permission to actually be um, be more out there in terms of showing your connection and care. That was a really sweet story. Um, you know, it, it's just, it's funny. I think about, you know, dog expressions. And I think sometimes what we don't understand is that we read facial expressions in people and dogs better than we think we do. And that our dogs read our expressions better than we think they do. And I think that, that learning to recognize those little micro expressions can really help in, in that bonding with your dog. And it, that would be something too. You could say, wow, I just, um, I really like the way Clementine just looked at you. You know, the way she went up to you was really sweet. And to recognize, I think sometimes too, to offer the re to the suggestion to a guy, your dog is responding to you in in the way that you want him to. Look at she is just she adores you. Look at the way she just walked up and you know threw herself down on your feet or whatever. I think giving them permission to recognize what their dog is offering may be another way to open them up to what they're actually getting out of it. I, I agree with you. And then taking it a step further in terms of recognizing, wow, I like the way you responded to to them. It's really kind. That you're you're a good man. And I like when you show those parts of you. Okay. Well, I think this has been really a very interesting and uh, discussion. And I, I don't know about you, Tina, but I would certainly love to have uh, Chris back for another session. We can talk uh, further. Um, is there anything in particular, Chris, that you would really like to tell our our audience that uh, you feel like we haven't covered or that you'd like to reiterate about the bond between men and their dogs? Well, it's probably reiterate, but um, men, boys, we're social creatures and we want and need connection and um, a lot of times that void is filled when it feels like it's off limit in in other parts of your life it's filled by the connection with animal companions and um, it, it's one of the reasons why that bond is so important and it's so important in terms of not just the attachment that we build but the way we experience loss when they're gone, because attachment and loss are two sides of the same coin. Um, if you care about somebody that much, you're going to experience an understandable sense of loss. And it is an indication 
of how much you were invested in that connection. I just love that you're doing this research and that you're bringing it forward to the world. I think it's probably under discussed. Well, thanks. I think it is under discussed. And, um, you know, I know this, I know this importance firsthand in my own life. And uh, it is a way for me to kind of continue my bond with the dogs who have really touched my life. Um, I think about them every time I get a chance to talk about this. So what's one thing that made Sadie really, really special? Oh, you know, she was um, a border collie, and border collies have a sense, you know, part of the way they're hardwired is to be just devoted. Uh, and uh, that kind of connection, I think, would be important in any part of life. But, um, but, boy, who you're their number one. Yeah, it's a pretty amazing thing. Do you, Have you gotten another dog since then or not ready yet? I have uh, another Border Collie and a Golden Retriever, and they're both rescues. And uh, I haven't had them that long, but uh, they're wonderful. And uh, we're, we're having our own new adventures. Right, you're learning. And I do think, I will say, and I've had a long practice, I do think that those dogs from the past do whisper in our dog's ears and inform them how to love us. Um, I have seen that manifest so many times that I just, in my bones, believe that that's true, that there is some sort of transference about that amazing love. And I, I think it does carry forward and is an active love, not the past. So. I agree. I agree with you. It's all the more reason uh, for me to be a part of coming visit today uh, to be able to talk about these things. It's out of a, out of a loving sense of appreciation, and I owe them this. We are so glad that you came and and gave a chance to have this. Uh, oftentimes, we're we're talking about sort of I don't know, not really frenetic, but so much busyness, and it's nice to be quiet, and it's nice to talk about things of the heart in a, in a quiet and gentle manner. So thank you so much for joining us. And uh, hopefully you'll be, and you know, we'd love to have you back when your book comes out. How's that? Yeah, like we would love to hear more about your book. Yeah. So let us know when that comes out and we will have you back on to talk about famous people and their dogs. Cause I think that that would be really fun. So thank you all for having me on. I really enjoyed the zoom with you. All right. Well, thanks. And we'll see you all next time on Your Family Dog. Thanks for listening to Your Family Dog. Got questions? Interesting ideas? Visit www.yourfamilydogpodcast.com to share your thoughts.